0: All right, uh, today we are finishing up our series on the Bible and the big and little questions. And today uh, I feel like we have two uh, two pretty big ones. Uh, I'm going to talk uh, about how how does feminism relate to the gospel. And then Sean is going to come up and he's going to talk about uh, why we don't baptize babies. And uh, since we don't do that, when, when should we baptize kids for uh, other people? So... How does the gospel relate to feminism, or how does feminism relate to the gospel? I want to kind of preface everything that I'm about to say by saying, uh, I mean, obviously, I'm a, I'm a guy, right? I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not feminine. Uh, I mean, maybe in some ways, you know, I'm a, I'm a little sensitive about some things. Um, but uh, so it would be easy to be like, you're just, you're just a, a man up there, uh, this issue doesn't really matter to you. You don't really know about this. It doesn't really apply to you. So why, why are you talking to us about this? Um, and I would respond to that by saying that I'm married to uh, a female. And we have uh, 4.9 girls who live with us. Uh, because the point nine is about to be born in uh, less than three weeks. So this issue very much matters to me. Because I want to raise... Uh, strong Christian women uh, who aren't kept back from doing anything that God has made them to do, and so this issue very much does matter to me. And so I'm I'm excited to be the one that gets to talk about it. So, how does feminism relate to the gospel? What we're going to do today is I'm going to try to answer this question briefly in a short amount of time, and it's a big question that we could talk a very long time about. And so don't if you. You know feel like I'm just skipping over some stuff and glossing over some things it's because that's exactly what I'm doing because I don't have that much time to talk about this so if there's stuff that you want to know more about or you have questions about what I say or don't say I would love to talk more about this with you some other time Um, and we have talked about this at other times at BC so I could even point you to stuff that you could listen to if you wanted to do that Um, but also, what I would like to do is to help us to answer questions like this. How does something relate to the gospel? And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at creation. We're going to look at how God designed uh, this issue to be. Then we're going to look at how that's broken and corrupted by the fall. Then we're going to look at how that's kind of redeemed in Christ. And then ultimately, finally and fully redeemed in the new creation. Because I feel like that's a helpful way for us to begin to think through questions like this. How does how does competition relate to the gospel? Well, well, let's think about how that was corrupted by the fall. Let's think about how it's redeemed in Christ. Let's think about how that will be done away with or changed in the new creation. It can help us to answer questions like this. So don't hear me as just answering this question. Begin to think through other issues in this way too. So, before we go to creation to see how male and female uh, beings and relationships existed before the fall, I want to talk briefly about what feminism is, because Uh, some of you might not know. I didn't know a lot about it before I started looking into it more clearly this week. So historians uh, find three waves of feminism, three kind of uh, transitions of feminists over uh, our our recent history. And so the first wave started in about uh, the mid-1800s and went to the early 1900s. This is like Downton Abbey feminism. So uh, they wanted... The right to vote, and the right to own property, and the right to uh, you know choose certain reproductive options. And so this first wave of feminism, I would say, is is largely asking for things that should have been theirs from the very beginning. Uh, the second wave started in about the 1960s, goes to through the the, the 1990s, and their focus was on uh, more stuff with reproductive rights, workplace equality, things like. Uh, the right to not be harassed in the workplace. Things like the right to not get fired if you get pregnant. Again, those are good things that probably should have been in place from the beginning. Uh, focused on the end of de- ending and fighting against domestic violence and pornography and prostitution. Uh, then, in the 1990s, this kind of third wave of feminism came out and it was, it was somewhat of a reaction against uh, the whiteness and uh, middle-classness of the second wave of feminism. And uh, it's, it's kind of hard to nail down what these groups actually believe because one of their uh, agendas is to redefine what feminism is and that hasn't really finished yet. So it's in this process of redefinition, but one of their very clear uh, values and objectives is to abolish any kind of gender roles or gender distinctions or gender stereotypes. Um, another interesting thing about these kind of current feminists is that they're divided on issues like prostitution and pornography. Some of them, like a second wave feminist, would say that's bad; it demeans women. Some of them would say this is a way women can can gain power and empower themselves. So there's this odd kind of debate and process going on within feminism as they're trying to figure out what they really stand for. And the point of all that is not to give you a, a history of feminism lesson, but to say that when we think about feminism, we need to recognize that uh, it's, it's a kind of a different animal than some other things, in that there is some parts of it that are very, very, very good, and there are some parts of it that are very, very, very bad. So, for example, the right to vote. That's a good thing, right? Women should be able to vote. If we don't think that, then uh, we need to change our minds and think something different. Uh. But other things, like pushing reproductive rights to an extreme so that a woman can kill her child at any stage of pregnancy is a really, really bad thing. That's not something that we should desire. That's not something that we should encourage others to desire and pursue. And so feminism has some really good parts. It has some really bad parts. But what we do need to recognize is that it's more of an established movement than not. So I don't think it would be fair of us for to say that it's, you know, we should be feminists because there's some good things, but we don't hold to the bad things. That would be like saying, you know, I'm a Christian, uh, but, you know, I don't really agree with Paul I don't really think Jesus was God. I don't believe in this whole baptism thing. Right? We can't pick and choose parts of Christianity and say, I'm a Christian. We either are a Christian and we hold to what Christians hold to, or we're not a Christian. And So I don't think that we should say, yeah, well, I'm a feminist, but I'm not, I'm not that kind of feminist. Because feminism is more of a defined thing than not, uh, even though it's going through some changes. So it brings some good things, it brings some bad things. So, how should we understand feminism in light of the gospel? Back to the question with kind of that knowledge of what feminism is, how do we relate these two? And here's my answer. I'm going to give this to you first, and then explain this. Feminism is a result of sin, which I know that sounds really inflammatory, so stick with me. The sin of men and the sin of women. In the gospel both men and women in both masculinity and femininity are redeemed. It the gospel does more good than feminism can and none of the bad. So I'm going to explain this. So if right now you don't know exactly what I mean by that or where I'm going, that's good because that's what we're going to do for hopefully the next 10 minutes. So, starting in Genesis 1, we see this verse, Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. So right at the beginning of the Bible, God tells us through Moses that he created human beings in his image. Both men and women are created in God's image. So right in the first few pages of the Bible, we learn that men and women are equal in their worth, their dignity, the honor and value they should be shown in his creation because they are both created in his image. He is who determines their worth and their identity and their dignity. And he says, both of them are created in my image. In Genesis 2, we begin to get some more information about how men and women are created and the way in which it's done. And so uh, it tells us that, that God creates Adam in this unique and personal way. In Genesis 1, he tells us that God you know, speaks his creation into existence. And then in Genesis 2, he tells us that God you know, forms Adam out of the dust. He makes him with his hands, and he breathes life into him. He's making Adam in a way that's distinct from the rest of his creation. And he takes Adam, and he puts Adam in this garden that he's made for him. But then there's a problem. Look at verse 18 of Genesis 2. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So this is the first point where we get to a place in creation where God's like, This this isn't good the beginning, he creates things and he's telling, saying it's good over and over again. There's this kind of recurring refrain in Genesis. And then after he places Adam in the garden, he says, it's not good for him to be alone. I need to make a helper fit for him. So in the next few verses, God causes all the animals, all his creatures to pass in front of Adam. Adam names them all. And as this process is going along, it's, it's found out that none of them are a helper that's fit for him. So God causes this deep sleep to fall on Adam. He takes a rib from aside and he makes Eve. He makes this woman to be this helper that's fit for him. But we need to understand what that means. What does it mean that the woman is a helper fit for a man? So first of all, she's a helper. And here there are some Christians that want to say that because she's a helper it means that she's a subordinate. The problem with that is that a major way this word helper is used in the Old Testament is to describe God coming to the help of his people. So if God helps us, does that mean that God is our subordinate? He, he works for us. We tell him what to do and he does it. No. No, right? That's not who God is. God is our superior always even and especially when he helps us. The the reason why he can help us is because he has resources and abilities that we don't have. So it's a helper. It's not an inferior. The way another translation puts this phrase is they say that she is a necessary companion. She's someone that he cannot do the work that God has called him to in his creation without it. He is someone she cannot do the work in God's creation that he has called her to. She's a necessary companion. It also says that she's fit for him. She's a, a complement, complement with an E, meaning she, she kind of fits him in a unique unique way that the rest of creation doesn't. She corresponds to him, not she says nice things about him. She's not that kind of compliment for him. Um, she is a companion that's uniquely made to be with Adam in a way that the rest of creation can't. She's not inferior. She's not a subordinate. She's someone who comes alongside him and helps him do what God has called him to do. And he's someone who comes alongside her and helps her do what God has called her to do. So later scripture, when we get to the New Testament and we read things in Paul's writings, he looks back on this creation account and sees in the way that God describes this relationship, even though she's a a necessary companion, even though she's a helper fit for him, later scripture authors see some sort of distinction in this relationship. Even though they're they're equally created in God's image, there are some some maybe role differences in the relationship. So there's three things I want to point out about this. Uh, The first one is uh, the order of creation. So God makes Adam, he forms him out of the dust, he breathes life into him, then later he uh, takes a rib from his side and makes Eve. And Paul, twice in the New Testament, looks back on that and says that tells us something about their relationship. In both 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians, Paul says the fact that Adam was created first and Eve was created second gives Adam some sort of leadership role in their relationship. So uh, in First Timothy, he's talking about the church. He's saying because Adam was made first, Eve was made second, uh, the, the male has some sort of leadership role in the church that uh, the woman does not have. We're not going to talk about that because it would take way too much time. There's a sermon on our website about it, though, if you have questions. In 1 Corinthians, Paul's talking about specifically within the marriage relationship. And he looks back and he says, Adam was made first, Eve was made second. So the man has some sort of authority, some sort of leadership role over the woman. Personally, that's not an argument I would make. I don't look at Genesis 2 and say, well, obviously, because he was made first and she was made second, he's the leader, she's the follower. Uh, But Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, with the authority of God, says that. And so it's what we should say Two, The second thing that I want to point out from Genesis is that Adam names Eve, right? When God causes all the animals to pass in front of Adam, Adam names them all. And then when Eve is created from his side, he creates her, or he, he names her. He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So he has the authority to name her, to call her what her name will be. And then later, uh, after the fall, he renames her Eve. So one scholar says this. I think we have this quote up here. It says, in naming the animals, Adam exercises authority as vice regent over creation. Likewise, when Adam called her woman, he was exerting a leadership role that God gave to him alone. So, in his naming of her, he's, he is exercising some level of authority. The third thing that I want to point out in this is what happens in Genesis 3. So, in Genesis 3, the fall happens, uh, the Satan comes, he tempts Eve, Eve eats from the tree that she's not supposed to eat. Then Adam eats from the same tree. But when God comes to confront them, something strange happens. God confronts Adam first. Eve sinned first, then Adam. But God comes and he confronts Adam. He says, what have you done? And the reason why that happened, I think, is because he told Adam what to do. He said, these are the rules of the garden. Don't eat from that tree. You can eat from anything else. Don't eat from this one tree. And Eve does it because Adam didn't fulfill the role that God gave him in creation. Adam didn't lead her and protect her as he called him to do. And so God, when he holds them accountable, he also holds Eve accountable, but he holds Adam accountable first. Uh, another reason why I think there's some sort of distinction in this relationship, even though both are created equally in God's image, is because of what happens in Genesis 3 and how sin affects their relationship. So look at Genesis 3.16 with me. They have this relationship. They're both equal in God's image. There's some sort of role distinctions in their relationship. They sin. Sin uh, comes into the world and ruins everything. It breaks everything. And God, in Genesis 3, is pouring out judgment on Adam, on Eve, and on the serpent. And one of the things he says is particularly interesting as it relates to what we're talking about today. In Genesis 3.16, he tells Eve, "'I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. "'In pain you shall bring forth children.'" Then he says, this is what we're focused on today, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Something has happened to their relationship. Some way sin has broken it, it has corrupted it, and we need to understand what that is because it will help us understand what goes on in in our relationships and what maybe these the people who believe in feminism are responding to. The way I think we understand this is by looking at the way that this same author uses these same words in the very next chapter of Genesis. So in Genesis four seven, we see this: God is talking to Cain, and He says, "If you do well," because Cain's Cain's angry; he's mad at God because God hasn't accepted his offering. He says, "If you do well, will you not be accepted?" And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So he uses the same exact words in a very similar phrase to talk about this thing having this desire and the other thing responding against it by ruling over it. So what is God telling Cain to do there? He's saying, Sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain doesn't rule over it, and what happens? What does Cain do? He murders his brother. So Cain doesn't rule over sin. Sin instead, its desire uh, has its way with him and he gives into it and is is the one who murders his brother. What he's saying, I think, is when he says that sin's desire is for you but you must rule over it, he's saying sin wants to control you. It wants to enslave you. It wants to dominate you. It wants to rule over you in a way in which it shouldn't. Uh, But you, Cain, must rule over it. He must be the one who leads. He must be the one who masters that desire and doesn't allow it to enslave him. That's how we should understand these words with regard to sin. That's not, that's not exactly how we should understand these words in the marriage relationship. So let's go back and look at Genesis 3.16. I think we have these side by side too, right? So your desire shall be for your husband, but he will rule over you. So Eve's desire is going to be to control or master her husband. She's going to want the role that God gave to him and not the role that God gave to her. And Adam is going to be domineering. He's going to be overly authoritative. He's going to respond to her desire with a, I don't know, being a jerk. By, by trying to crush any perceived rebellion that's coming from her against his role. The reason why this happens is because of sin. Because these God-given, God-ordained nature of their relationship is broken and corrupted by sin. What we should not see, though, I think that it, for men especially, it's really tempting for us to look at Genesis 3.16 and say, well, well she does this, and then I do that. This isn't just a response. Some of the wife's desire is because the husband leads like a jerk. So this is a mutually destructive corruption from sin. And so we should work against this in uh, the gospel to not live like we're still corrupt, sinful human beings because of the fall, but instead live in a different way. The rest of the Old Testament is going to tell the story of how God sends his Redeemer to overturn all of the effects of the fall. And that absolutely includes Genesis 3.16. But I think that we should notice a very important thing, and that's that some of those distinctions in the relationship existed before the fall. What happens in Genesis 3 is not that these distinctions break into the relationship, but that those distinctions are corrupted and taken to an unhealthy extreme. So we should say that in Genesis 2, we see some distinctions in the husband-wife relationship, but those are broken and distorted and corrupted by sin. And so we want to see the gospel redeem those, that brokenness and that corruption, but we should not expect the gospel to completely overturn everything that God ordained in his creation for good. Just do away with the bad. So we get to the New Testament. And what we see in the New Testament, I think, is a very different picture of how uh, God and his people respond to women than in the Old Testament. On the very first few pages of the New Testament, we see the genealogy of Christ, and in it are listed four women. The only reason women were ever listed in genealogies in the ancient world was because they bestowed some honor or political power on the person at the end of the line. That's not the case with this genealogy. These are women of particularly ill repute, prostitutes, people who commit adultery. There are people that you would not list in your family tree to say, look at how awesome I am. Look at my great, great lineage. You would say, I'm going to hide these people so you don't know they're part of my family. I only want to show you the good side of my family tree. Um, But God saw fit in inspiring Matthew to write his gospel to honor these women in this way see the same thing happen in the the Christmas story. Joseph, being a just man, wants to put Mary away because she has this illicit pregnancy. So he's going to respond to her in the way that men were fully entitled to in the ancient world, which was just to shame her and to make it so that she could never be in a relationship like that again. But instead, God sends his angel so that his son can be born through her to protect that relationship and not allow her to be mistreated as... You know, some adulterer that she wasn't. Um, I think we see the same thing in Jesus' ministry. Jesus honors women. He overturns some of the cultural norms of the day, like talking to a woman in public. You know, we read the story of the woman of the well and we think, well, it's just Jesus talking to people. But we don't recognize that what he did was somewhat scandalous. Women or men didn't just approach other women and start a dialogue with them. But he does it because he's honoring them in a way that the rest of the culture doesn't. He also allowed women to be part of his followers. Right? We see lists of women in some of the lists of disciples. Um, he allows them to minister to them, like the lady who comes and breaks the alabaster box. He allows them to do things that they normally wouldn't have been able to do in that culture. I think that we see... Uh, the cultural understanding of male-female relationships beginning to be worked against by the gospel even before he dies on the cross. After he dies on the cross, Paul writes Ephesians. And in Ephesians, he tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Then, Paul tells wives to submit to their husbands uh, as to the Lord. Before that, he says, "Be submissive to one another, out of reverence for Christ." So, in our culture, because of feminism, we you know hear him telling the wives to submit, and we think, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! That's crazy. We need to explain this. We need to understand this. what, is, what does that mean? Because women shouldn't have to submit to men, but for them, they would have stopped at be submissive to one another. Like that's not specifically about the husband-wife relationship, but it's about the church. And so there would have been men in the church who would have been like, whoa, I don't need to submit to the women in this church because I'm a man. In our culture, the men are the top dog and we don't listen to anyone else. But the gospel is working against those things. And I think specifically in the marriage relationship, when he talks about it in Ephesians 5, what he's doing is he's working against the curse in Genesis 3.16. As he tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, he gave himself up for it. He's telling us to be sacrificial servants. He's telling us to deny ourselves for the sake of our wives. He could have just as easily said, don't rule over them. Don't take your authority to an extreme. Don't try to master her. Don't try to dominate her. Don't be domineering. Instead, be her servant. Deny yourself even some of the authority that you think you have for her good. He tells wives to submit to their husbands, to to be respectful to them. He could have just as easily said, don't let your desire be for your husband in that sinful, corrupt way. Don't desire the role that God gave to him alone. Submit to him out of respect. Be respectful to him. Respond to his sacrificial leadership with sacrificial following. And the reality is that that should be easy. I think that one thing that we as husbands should recognize is that if we ever get to the point in our marriage or in a fight where we have to say, I'm the husband and you should listen to me, we've lost it. We're not leading at that point. We're dominating. We're mastering. We are ruling over them in a sinful and unhealthy way. I think that Our wives should want to submit to us because of the loving way that we lead them. And if they don't, then... I mean, I'm not just saying the sin in that situation is all on the husband because I think we who are married know that's never the case in an argument. Sin rests on both sides. But we, as the one who's been placed in authority, should lead in a way that is well. And we should be the one to push forward in reconciliation to say... I, I overstepped my bounds. I overstepped the role that God gave me. I led in a corrupt and sinful and depraved way instead of in the way that I'm called to uh, as I follow Christ. In the new creation, I think what we see is that feminism is unnecessary. Right? Once sin is taken out of the picture, once everything is put the way it was always supposed to be, all the movements and things in this world which work to gain us equality aren't going to be necessary anymore because we're going to see each other as we should. We're going to honor each other as we should. That's not going to happen until Christ can turn, until Christ returns, until He makes you know everything sad come untrue. When He does that, it will. Um, and so I think what we should see is that. Even though feminism has good parts, even though it has, or it has bad parts as well, we should see that it has its birth, I think, in Genesis 3, in the fall. And the way this relationship that God ordained for good is distorted and corrupted by sin. But I think feminism's death is when Christ dies on the cross, when he makes it irrelevant. Irrelevant. The only reason why it still exists, the only reason why it's still necessary, the only reason why people are still fighting that fight is because we as the church haven't pushed forward out into society advocating for the things that his word calls us to. Right? If the church would have been being the church the way it should have been in the 1800s and 1900s, women would have had the right to vote. They would have had the right to own property because there would have been Christians who stood up and said, hey, that's wrong. They're created in God's image just like I am. They should have that right just like I do. You would say the same thing about other issues, which thankfully I think have been worked against by Christians in the world, and they're still being worked against by Christians in the world for good. I'm not saying that like, if we just all believe the gospel, that the world would be you know, sunshine and rainbows and all the bad things would be done away with. That's not going to happen until he finally and fully makes this world completely new. But it is going to happen. To really quickly, I don't want to talk about all this without talking about what the view is that I'm talking about. Uh, I would describe myself and BC as a church. Uh, we are complementarian. What that means is that we believe uh, that men and women, and there's two words, two phrases, are ontologically equal. I really don't want to use the word ontological, but I mean try putting that in a thesaurus and coming up with a better option. There's, there's not. What that word means is that in our being, we are equal. As human beings, both men and women are created in God's image, and we're equal. The second half is that we are functionally different. We have different functions, different roles in uh, God's creation. I think we see these most clearly in the home and in the church. And the reality is we see this in other areas in the church. So, for example, uh, we're a church that believes in elders, And so we have five elders, me, Matt, Jason, Sean, and Daniel. And I would say that as elders, we are ontologically equal with you guys, right? We're human beings, just like you are human beings. But in the church, we have a functional difference. Uh, The people that are members are members. We are elders. We're also members too, but we have a role in the church. And so we go to meetings, uh, we make decisions, we hopefully lead the church in a way which you don't feel ruled over. But I don't think anyone feels like they're less of a human being because we are elders and you guys aren't. If you do feel that way, I would love to talk to you to see if we can fix that. Uh, And so I think that when when we put this in that context, it's really easy to see the difference. Whereas if we put it in the context of male-female relationships, it's really easy to look at that and say, well, like, that, doesn't, that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem like we're really equal if we're functionally different. We are equal. We're equally created in God's image. We're designed by Him. We have value and worth and dignity that's equally the same. But we have, because of the way God ordained it, some sort of functional distinctions in uh, the marriage relationship and I think in the church as well. But... I will also say that as we are complementarians, both me as an individual and us as a church, I want us to be the type of complementarians that are empowering and freeing, not restrictive. And so right now, there's this kind of squabble going on in the complementarian world between you know two groups that are trying to figure out what it exactly means to be complementarian. This group is saying this thing, this group is saying this other thing. Uh, If you want to read about that, go ahead. If you don't want to read about that, I'm probably not going to either until it's all done, and then I'm going to figure out the way it got solved. But for us, I think that too many churches say, for example, women can't be pastors. That's what I believe the New Testament says. But that's the only thing it restricts them from. I think too many churches say that and hear that and believe that, and then they say, well, then we just shouldn't let them do anything in the church. We shouldn't let them do anything that might be remotely close to pastoring, so let's let's draw the line. We want to draw the line very far back so that we don't accidentally do something that we shouldn't. But I think instead what we should do is we should honor the women in our church by encouraging them to use the gifts that God has given them in whatever ways they can, while also respecting the lines that God has drawn in Scripture, but not drawing lines of our own. I think the reality is that God gifts women in the exact same way that he gifts men. All the spiritual gifts, I believe, can be given to men and can also be given to women. And so we should encourage women in our church to use their gifts in a way that is in line with what God has called them to do, while respecting the lines that he's drawn in Scripture. So uh, for me... As a father of five girls, I want to raise women that make it incredibly difficult for their husbands to lead them. (laughs) I want them to be strong. I want them to be strong-willed. I want them to be opinionated. I want them to know more theology than their husbands know. I want them to be women of God who have been raised up in a church that embraces the gospel and empowers them to do what he's called them to do. So it's my desire to lead our church there. I think in the past, we've been too restrictive. I think we're working against that now in the present. and so if you're a lady and you have a spiritual gift and you want to use it and you feel like something is holding you back, as elders, I think we'd love to talk to you about that to figure out how we can help you do that. I'll also say, if you're a guy and you're in that place, we would love to talk to you and figure out how we can help you exercise the gifts that God has given you. Um, if you have questions... I would love to talk to you about this afterwards. I know that this was a whole lot of information smashed into probably not as short of time as it should have been smashed into, Uh, but I appreciate you listening and giving me grace even though I'm a man and not a woman talking about feminism. Now Sean's going to come and he's going to talk about baptism.
1: And I will try to be brief? No, I'm going to be brief. All right going to happen. All right, so the questions that I'm answering are, why don't we baptize babies? And if that is the case, then when should we baptize children? And so I'm excited for the opportunity to talk about this because I myself have been sprinkled and dunked. So um, there's there's maybe a a small group of us and we can create a club. It'll be great. Um, But I was Um, My folks were Catholic when I was born, and so I was sprinkled as a baby, and then when I was eight, I wanted a delicious steak dinner, so I said I was a Christian. I don't think that was accurate, but I got baptized, and I got that delicious steak dinner, and then at the tender age of 22, I decided, well, eight wasn't exactly it, and I can't put my fingers on the pulse of when it was, but I know that that has happened, because I ultimately trust that it's because of what Christ has done that that I'm saved, but I wasn't baptized in the right timing, so I did it at 22. So I get the opportunity to talk about all of this with us, and here's how I'm going to frame everything I have to say. I read a bunch of stuff that made me think of all the different arguments on everything, and it stressed me out. So... We can talk about all the debatable topics later, but I'm just going to give you where we stand, and then um, you can talk to each other about how I got it wrong. I would encourage you to talk to me about how I got it wrong. So, here it is. The reason we don't baptize babies is because we believe that baptism is for those who have made a profession of faith. Babies are unable to do that. And so we do not hold that we should baptize babies. Um, now, so I'm, I'm going to give you my answers. I'm going to give you BC's statement of faith, because I'm basing it on all of that. Then I'm going to give you the scripture that created that statement of faith. And then we'll, we'll go a little deeper. Um, and then we believe that children should be baptized after a profession of faith. Now there are going to be qualifications, and we'll talk about that, but that is where we hold that children should be baptized after they make a a genuine profession of faith. So, um, of course, where do I get these points? The B.C. Statement of Faith, because that way I can say, hey, we'd all agreed on this already. So, the BC statement of faith is We believe that those who have turned from sin to trust in Christ, according to the teachings of Christ Himself, are to be immersed in water or baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This act of obedience does not save anyone or wash away their sins, nor is it through this act that believers are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Rather, it symbolizes the union of believers with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. We read that earlier. Um, it is an outward sign of an inward change, the first step of obedience for the follower of Christ. And so, where do we get the, all of this information? So the places that we, we get it, and you can check the statement of faith that you might have signed, or maybe you're looking to do so. Um, first, of course, is Matthew uh, 28, 19 through 20, and that is, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this tells us why we baptize, because Jesus said, baptize. All right, then Acts 2, 41 says, So those who received this word were baptized, and and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I'll give you some context there because I realize that I'm not giving you the full story. So this is right after Pentecost. So uh, the Holy Spirit comes down and on all the disciples when they're in the upper room, uh, Peter gets up and he starts sharing the gospel with everybody. And there are many who come to a faith in Christ. So then after that, it says, so those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So there isn't a huge progression between when they made a profession of faith and baptism. The implication is that day, um, and then Acts eight twelve. Okay, I'm gonna skip over to thirty five through thirty nine because Acts Acts eight Acts eight twelve. So eight twelve. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit, yes, was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, "Nope." No, that's not right. I wrote that down wrong, apparently. Um, But I will skip ahead because it talks about, um, so Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. For those who who aren't familiar, Philip happens upon an Ethiopian eunuch who is lying in repose reading the book of Isaiah. That doesn't happen too often, but that is what happened in this case. Um, And Philip's like, what you got there? And the eunuch says, this is what I'm reading. And Philip says, let me explain it to you. So he explains to him, and he explains the gospel. And then as they are riding along later, um, in 8.36, I have this right. Um, well, I'll go back to 34. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Right there, it, it is that day. It is immediately. It is, we've got some water right here. You said that you trust in Christ. Bam, let's make it happen. Um, and then, um, a little bit regarding the meaning of baptism. We all read it earlier as a group, um, but I would like to read it again. Romans 6, and uh, I'll just read uh, the first paragraph. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried and that... Therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so you guys will also, um, fun fact, we are having a couple baptisms today, so we get the opportunity to, to see this in action and hear these words and to consider that, that um, we are representing that we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Um, So with baptism and with this, um, we get a new identity, and that is found in Galatians 3.27. Again, I'm trying to go through this quickly so that uh, we can do everything we need to today. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ... So baptism is a—it's a symbol, like like I said when in our statement of faith, it is an outward representation of an inward change. Um, and then one last part uh, to to just make sure we've covered everything that is part of our statement of faith uh, in Colossians two twelve, having been I'll back it up a little bit for. to point back to where we got our initial statement of faith, that we believe that those who have turned from their sin, um, at no point does it indicate a specific age, uh, to trust in Christ according to the teachings of Christ himself are to be immersed in baptism or baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This act of obedience does not save anyone. Um, and so that is an important, something important to recognize is that baptism is a representation of um, it is not the act of salvation. um and so, uh, nor is it through this act that believers are indwelled by the spirit. Um, it has very much meaning, but it is uh, it is mostly an a meaningful act i would I would say I wear a wedding ring, but uh, without it on, I'm still married, but it's a pretty big deal that I wear it, and it's it's really neat. Um, so. Rather, it symbolizes the union of believers with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. It's an outward sign of an inward change, the first step of obedience for the follower of Christ. So, uh, I feel uh, if, if you were had, had a whole lot of questions regarding the uh, baptism of infants, uh, we could talk about that later because um, I assume if you have a whole lot of like aggressive questions on that, you've done a whole lot of research in this, my response is insufficient for you, but but this is the the high you know high overview theme that we hold to. We baptize those who have made a profession of faith. So then the next part, of course, for any any parent here, anybody who is eventually going to be a parent, uh, it, it affects you to ask the question: When do we baptize children? And so, uh, as elders, we have have discussed. In fact, I had to confirm yesterday because I got really nervous thinking about like, if I say this, does everybody agree? And I, I got all emoticon thumbs up. So, um, but with that, we believe that uh, we're not just going to, to baptize children. So, like, so don't just hear that if a, if a seven-year-old walks up to me and says, I would like to get baptized, I'm going to go, let's do it. Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch style, we're hopping in the pool right now. We, with anybody, we have, we have an interview. We would like to talk with them about it. We would like to do what Philip did with the Ethiopian eunuch and make sure that they have walked through the gospel and they can articulate some of that back to us. And that would be the same for a child. Now, we also are going to adjust accordingly to how we talk to children. I'm not going to ask them about their belief on credo-baptism and their ecclesiology. I'm also not going to ask an adult that, I feel that's a pretentious (laughs) question. Um, um, But I'm just saying, like, we will adjust accordingly when we're talking to a child. But we're also going to add a step to that, and we're going to talk to their parents. Um, I'm not just writing, you know, we're not just writing a blank check to say, like, parents... Bring them on. Let's do that. Like we trust that you guys are taking an active role in the raising of your children, and if you think uh, it would be appropriate to wait and this is not the time, we we will let you parent your children. Um, but if your child believes that and you would agree with them, then I think that it's it's not necessary that we wait, um, because in some cases it's denying them a few things. Um, because generally speaking, following baptism, they are allowed to, to join in the, in the Lord's Supper. Of course, it doesn't have to go that way, but generally that, that is kind of the natural progression of things. And so your child who says, I, I believe in Jesus, I trust what he's done for me, um, you live with him, so you get to see some of the outworking of that, if that's the case or if that's not the case, and that's why we're going to talk to you about it. We want to know, is this true? Um, and so, we will engage with you on that topic. But then weekly, they get the reminder that they don't get to join in uh, just yet. And I think that, that while that won't necessarily cause them to no longer be Christians, if they were, um, it will cause some, some bitterness and some issues and some things that might need to be worked through. Because, um, But it's also a great opportunity to talk with them about the gospel. Um, when we we go through the Lord's Supper, it's great to have kids in here on Sundays And we remind Zeke, the reason we're doing this is because this is a representation of what Christ has done for us. And we we walk through that. So now there are certain fears along the lines of what if we're wrong when we baptize a child and they're not? I don't really see anywhere in Scripture that says we have to be 100% right because if baptism existed in the New Testament... And there are portions of the Bible where Paul talks about believers having left the church and and what that looks like. The church has parameters on how to go about church discipline. So we would then discipline somebody who is is taking a step away, and then he says they, they left us and they were never really part of us. So I say that to say that did happen. We see it in the New Testament. People, if they were in the church, they were baptized and then they left. So that's going to happen, but that we don't have to, we're not responsible for, for that portion. So we will entrust parents to parent. We will entrust you. We will ask you questions. And if your child and you believe that your child has made a genuine profession of faith, um, and it's going to, it's, it will manifest different. We know that the children will still act like children. That's going to happen. Um, and there's, um, and so with this, I would I would encourage if you are at that stage and you want to know, engage with us. We would like to join in that process. We're, I'm not saying any of this to, to to rule over to be like you must do this. Like your kid says it, get him baptized. But we would welcome that opportunity. So I hope that that makes sense. Again, please come talk to me. I'd love to talk about it. But. We have limited time, and I think we have a couple of videos here. Do we? Do we have them? All right, all right. So we are going to watch a couple of videos um, from our folks who are going to be baptized this very day. All right. So what we're going to do, and I would say with a fair amount of haste, is we're going to take the Lord's Supper momentarily, and then after that, um, we will. Every week we take the Lord's Supper to remind us what Christ has done on our behalf. Um, and so what we will do is we will take a moment, take the Lord's Supper, and then after you grab the Lord's Supper, head right on out, and we are going to gather around the pool. Also, if you want to ga- grab your kids so that they can be in on this process and they can, they can see and you can create another teachable moment and share the gospel with them, I would very much encourage you to do so. So, all right. So let's take a moment and... Uh, I will pray for us, and then when you are ready, come on up and then head out. Father, we are so thankful for what Christ has done for us. Father, we are thankful for uh, the, the signs and symbols and representations that, that you give us to point us back to Jesus, uh, to remind us that we are dead to sin and then raised alive with Christ. Father, we are thankful that once a week we remember that Your body was broken for us and Your blood was poured out, that we, um, that our relationship with You would be made right, and that we have nothing that we can add to the gospel. We just get to to celebrate what You've done for us. So, Father, I, I thank You for that. I thank You so much for Jesus.